Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. Okay, so Professor Leisha McNamara is my guest on the podcast today. So Leisha is a professor in biomedical engineering at NUIG and head of the mechanobiology research group with interests in the mechanobiology processes that contribute to bone development and osteoporosis. So Leisha is also the current holder of the Irish Research Council Researcher of the Year Award 2019. And so, yeah, I'm absolutely uh, thrilled and delighted to sit down and chat to you today, Leisha. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science. And thanks to you, Megan, for inviting me on. So, yeah, I suppose in this podcast, um, my first question to everyone is always, you know, did you always want to be a scientist or where did that passion for science ignite? I think I was always interested in science and maths in particular. I loved maths in school. I did think at one stage that I wanted to be a physiotherapist and that came from, I guess, the way the Irish Leaving Cert system works and there's high points. So I was academic physiotherapy was high point and I liked sport so I kind of put the two and two together in my head and missed it by five points and my second choice was mechanical engineering which really didn't match with any of my interests except for my mathematical interests but by good fortune for me about three weeks into college I really realized that I was an engineer I hadn't had a lot of exposure to engineering I went to a girls secondary school and uh, there wasn't a lot of technical subjects um, so the only reason I put mechanical engineering down second was because of the maths interest and, and I think for me it worked out I loved engineering but actually it worked out really well for me because by the third year of my studies they introduced biomedical engineering so I was able to stream off into this kind of multidisciplinary area which was now kind of matching my interests in mathematics but also bringing in uh, I suppose more biologically relevant questions that maybe I would have seen had I studied physiotherapy so um, I think it worked out very well for me. And did you like consider repeating the Leaving Cert or when you got the mechanical engineering you said I'll go for it? No, I never considered repeating it. I wasn't that vested in it. You know, I, I, I was someone who, who, you know, liked all aspects of life. I liked sport. I liked socialising and I was happy to move on to university. You know, for me, the physio was just something I'd put down. It wasn't something I had a passion for. And it just, it, it stood with me actually now over the last few years when I've been trying to advise students and trying to attract them into engineering that, you know, a lot of people when they're 16 or 17 are, are kind of expected to know what they want, but the reality is most people don't know. And uh, sometimes, you know, things can evolve as you, as you go through your path, even if it wasn't what you thought you'd really wanted, because how can we know, how can we know what it is we want to be when we're 16 or 17, you know? So uh, I, I try and give people advice now around, you know, just following the things they're either really passionate about or 
the things they're strong at, you know. And for me, that's why engineering made sense rather than I had any passion for it. But I absolutely have a passion for it now and, and have had for, for 20 years, but not at the start. So I suppose then in your undergrad, you were in your third year, is that what you said that you kind of got this biomedical uh, engineering? And then at what point then did you decide to kind of pursue that further, you know, as in to do a PhD or um, think about kind of academia? Yeah, so when I was in my fourth year of my studies, I was applying for jobs with medical device uh, companies in Galway. At that time, it was just a new industry to go away and there was lots of employment opportunities in the medical device sector. And I got a job, a good job, but at the same time, I had applied for a PhD position in, in Dublin and it was in Trinity and it was with uh, Professor Patrick Prendergast who is now the, the provost of Trinity but he interviewed me and I went up and I visited him and I just the, the passion he had for, for research and you know the whole idea of devoting myself to four years to, to studying something it just seemed more exciting to me than going straight into an industry job so it's not something I had ever thought I meet some people now and, and they know you know in first year or second year that they want to do a PhD but I wasn't like that it, it kind of evolved in fourth year and it was having two things offered to me at the same time and then just to me the idea of doing the PhD was exciting and I felt that the industry job was something I could look at later on if, if I had you know kind of parked the idea of research you know so and how did you find the PhD? So you moved up to Dublin then um, to Trinity. And yeah, how was that? How was the whole PhD experience? It was brilliant. It was it was fun. It was, uh, I, I have to say, even though I'm a very proud Galway woman and I love uh, the university I'm in uh, again now, NUI Galway, I really enjoyed my time in Trinity. Um, it was just I think I, I formed a group of friends there that are still my friends. They're all uh, still working in biomedical engineering research and that kind of made the whole thing even more fun I mean you know yourself from doing your own PhD that you know there's good days and bad days days with research but if your group is a group of people that you can um, play sport with or go for a drink with or, or you know generally have good support network there that really helps you through the process. But I mean, I, I enjoyed being in Dublin. I, I joined Trinity Water Polo Team and that's actually where I met my husband. So I I had a, a brilliant time. It seems like you're quite sporty. So if, you know, I feel like sport has come up a lot, like in the, even in the last few minutes. Yeah, well, I, I, I've never been an excellent sports person, but I love sports. It's important for me to... to to exercise. I love swimming. I've, I've been a swimmer for a lot of, of my youth. I was a competitive swimmer. And I think from my own perspective, we hear a lot nowadays about the importance of physical activity, you know, during the, the pandemic and lockdown for people's mental health. But for me, definitely, you know, I feel good when I'm, you know, have sport in my life three or exercise in my life three or four times a week. And I don't when I, when it's time where I, maybe I haven't been sick or I'm too busy or something like that. So it's important to me, but I've never been an outstanding sports person. It's just been. So, and do you still play water polo? Actually, I just started back after 10 years. I, I played for the first time on Sunday night and I hadn't played in 10 years. And um, so I, I swim still. I swim a lot over the years. And, and again, this year, I've gotten back into open water swimming and sea swimming because of, you know, it being right on our doorstep here in Goway. I can walk down to the, the beach in five minutes and got back into long distance water, open water swimming this summer and loved it. It was such a, 
a pleasure to be able to do that with everything closed there was no stopping it in the sea you know so yeah yeah it's got quite popular actually recently you know I feel like everyone's gonna see swimming I I did it like for, for the first time recently and I was like oh god I'm gonna be it's gonna be absolutely torture but once you get in there it's fine yeah and it's just I mean especially in the very early lockdown I mean I, I would usually be someone who'd swim in the sea in the summertime but in April I went in this year because everything was closed and it, uh, it was just it was very cleansing uh, in terms of feeling that you had this kind of space that you could enjoy, even though everything else was closed and restricted, you know? Yeah, and you didn't have to wear a face mask, which is important. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I suppose from the PhD, you know, you, you said you kind of um, rose to challenge, you enjoyed it, there was obviously ups and downs. And then I know that you went off and did your postdoc, um, I think in, in New York. Um, how did that come about? And, you know, what was the experience like moving from a lab in Ireland, Dublin, to then America? Yeah, so that, I think by the, you know, fourth year of my PhD, I definitely, or three and a half years in, I knew that I loved academia. I was, you know, I enjoyed all aspects of it, you know, the, the going to international conferences, the writing, I love writing, I love communicating about research. And so I, I was pretty sure that, this was a path I was going to pursue. And I, I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who, who was planning, she was finishing her master's and, and she was saying, well, how about we move to the States? She, she was in uh, psychology and then moved on to advertising and marketing. And so she was saying, I want to go to New York. And I said, oh, sure, so do I. And so I then went and had a, a chat to my PhD supervisor, Paddy at the time, and asked him, um, you know, would you know anyone in New York? And he was very good. It was such an important uh, moment in my life what he did at that stage. He he did have contacts in New York. He got in touch with them, said that he had a PhD student who was looking for a postdoc position and would they have anything? And then they got in touch with me. And I uh, flew over to New York for an interview. And uh, that was a very interesting experience, actually, because they met me for the interview at seven in the morning. So that's how it started at Mount Sinai School of Medicine is a hospital up on the Upper East Side, about uh, two blocks from the, the north end of Central Park. And I was interviewed literally all day. I was with them until about half ten that night. And they had uh, I'd been introduced to every single person in the lab had spent on average about an hour with every person had to present it was extremely intense but also very nice I mean they're very thorough in their recruitment in the US and then at half ten at night standing on a street in in the Lower East Village my uh, postdoc supervisor uh, Professor Mitch Schaffer uh, said well we'd love you to come on board and I was obviously thrilled and this was going to work out for me so I moved then. I wasn't finished the PhD when I went for the interview and then kind of had to finish it up very quickly. And I moved on a Friday and started in the lab on the Monday. And and you asked a really interesting question there. You know, how was it? Well, they were a really nice lab and, and lovely people. And my postdoc advisor is still a good friend of mine. And uh, But things I did notice that were different were the intensity with which they work. I mean, in the US, it's kind of seen to be very important to put in very long hours. And I just finished my PhD on a Friday. I was tired. Um, I kind of wanted to get to know this new city I'd moved to. So I just literally didn't have the energy. So I started to work kind of 95, 96. And um, then I would go and try and get stuff from my apartment in the evening. Uh, I joined a water polo team in New York. So I, I had to go down and find a club and then do a trial. And, you know, I was doing these kind of things, trying to establish myself and learn the city. I moved by myself. I had no uh, friends there. I'd been given a few contacts. 
and then I kind of just kept working that way as as the time went on. I, I stuck to what was working for me, and I felt you know I'm young, I'm living in New York, I'm I'm not going to miss up this chance to enjoy this place, and actually. That's taught me a lot in life since then. What I noticed was that these people working extremely long hours were making a lot of mistakes. They were trying to run experiments at night when they were tired. Uh, there was a lot of kind of what I felt was um, time being spent there rather than time being spent well at work, you know, and that's a principle I've taken with me ever since then. I'm very focused on being in, getting my work done. I'm quite intense when I'm at work. Um, and then I like to finish up about five or six every evening and be done with it, you know? So, uh, so that was an interesting experience. And what I really learned from it was that, you know, the way I worked works fine for me and I was still be able to be successful. I was able to get my data, publish my research, you know, and that for me, long hours weren't necessarily what I needed to do. You know, I needed to be able to think and I think in very controlled hours, you know, and that works for me. So, but a hugely stimulating environment to be in, you know, uh, the passion that people have for their research is so important to see and seeing different environments and see how people do it in different places is very important. And even learning about the funding mechanisms in the US and, and how competitive it is, you know, it, it all stood to me when I moved back here and, and had to follow those journeys myself, you know. And did you come up against any, I suppose, kickback from the way you were working? Or did anyone else in your lab kind of, well, maybe not, but, you know, were they were they kind of like, well, why aren't we doing that? Um, well, what I noticed was when I was leaving, they, they wrote me a farewell card and I was surprised that they'd noticed that I, I mean, I felt I was working, you know, very well and producing them. So they wrote all over this card, how did you get so much done in so little time? And, you know, so I think they probably reflected on, you know, that maybe their way of working isn't necessarily the only way. And, but it was just surprising to me that, it, you know, I felt, now having said that, not everybody worked like that. There were some people that came in at like seven in the morning and had to get a train home to somewhere, you know, outside of the city at four o'clock. So, the, you know, it, it's not like everybody, the PhD students I noticed particularly were working just intense hours, nothing like I would have done previously or or would encourage my own group to do now. I mean, I, I don't, I try and make sure everybody understands the importance of their weekend and not working late at night. And, you know, that this, this is not leading to your brain being at its most optimal in terms of making decisions and, you know, reflecting on your research and things like that. So, yeah. And I think kind of the point you made there about it's more kind of spending time in the lab without actually being productive. And I think definitely in, in, from my experience, I don't think that was the feeling in our lab, but I do know in other labs where, you know, it's more like just to be seen that you're staying in till past seven or whatever. And really, what are you doing in there? You know, It's funny how those experiences can really, you know, be important later on when you have to try and come up with your own way of, you know, running a group and encouraging them, you know, how to spend their time. And, And I do, regularly try and remind them that we shouldn't be planning to be in at the weekends. I mean, obviously with cells and sometimes with other studies, there are things that crop up that have to be checked on at the weekend, but that shouldn't be designed in if possible. If you can design it out of uh, your plans, then you should do that, you know. No, definitely. And um, how long did you spend in the States then? So I was just under two years there and I came back sooner probably than I had anticipated, but a, a lecturing, fixed term lecturing position came up in Galway. And at the time, there weren't many lecturing positions came up and I just kind of felt it was, it, there mightn't be another opportunity 
for a while for a job like that to come up. So it came up and I applied for it and got it and then moved back to Galway in November. And that was kind of, you know, I'd been in Dublin for four years and then I'd been in the US and then moving back then to Galway. It was just going back to the same building I had done my undergraduate degree in was, and I had to move home with my parents for a little bit as well. So it was a bit of a transition from New York City, but it was ultimately, you know, a great decision. I, I've been in Galway. I, I left again then after two years, I got a permanent position in the University of Southampton in the UK and had two years there. And that was also very important in my career. I think I learned how the UK system works and I had, you know, generated networks there. And I mean, University of Southampton is a fabulous university and I just kind of got to see how things were done there. But ultimately I came back then to Galway uh, again on a, a permanent, uh, one of these SFI, they had these Stokes lectureships positions, which were around recruiting people to Ireland. And I got one of those and, and returned then in, that was in 2009 then. And I've been in Galway since then. The other question I was going to ask you is, is there anyone who you look back on who really encouraged you or who really kind of, I suppose, gave you the confidence to, you know, achieve in academia or um, I suppose maybe that you looked up to? I know you mentioned um, Patrick Pendergast. I don't know if that yeah. is the person or if you have anyone else in mind um, who kind of encouraged you along the way. Yeah, I, I would say it's more than one person. I mean, um, obviously, uh, my own family were very supportive family um, and, you know, my father himself is an engineer and my uncle actually is, is was a professor of mechanical engineering and, and my brother's engineers and my another brother an architect and they would have encouraged me at an early stage because of my interest in maths to look at engineering and I think had they not done that I wouldn't have you know followed this path you know I, I wasn't getting that exposure you know in a, a broad sense just given the, the subject choices available to me in my school now I also had a guidance counsellor who who you know did these aptitude tests and she said engineering as well so I do re- think of her a lot now in terms of how important that role can be the guidance counsellor you know if, if they're spotting things in you that maybe you've never even thought about or considered you know just planting that seed you know is is important but obviously then you know i would say that professor prendergast was a huge influence in terms of just just his enthusiasm passion for for the research area and his networks and his you know his worldly vision on it all was important as well so we we never thought about ourselves as just working in ireland we kind of thought about well what's happening you know across the world and you know that's very important in research, you know. And uh, I think then as well, I, my postdoc supervisor was very supportive, but I've had very supportive colleagues in, in engineering over the last number of years. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a series of, of fortunate kind of experiences that I think help. It's funny, God, I didn't realise there were so many engineers in your in your family. That must have yeah. been, is there a lot of heated discussion over the dinner table then about engineering? And I think when we were younger, there, there used to be a lot of discussions, things like space and stuff like that. And I used to find it a bit overwhelming, to be honest. And I'd be the sort of person that likes to switch off. It, certainly, you know, even though there's a lot of engineers in the family, nothing was kind of, we were a big family, I'm one of five, you know, so it was busy, you know, people were going out to sport and playing in the fields and stuff like that. So we weren't this very uh, technically, you know, focused family at home. We weren't always entertaining ourselves with, you know, technology or, or designing things or, you know, breaking things or any of the things people might stereotype engineers to do. So as I as I say, I, I think I really only got exposed to engineering when I was in university. Uh, even though people had suggested it would be a good match for me, I wasn't, 
living and breathing it. And we did a campaign. I was uh, I was in a role in in engineering over the last couple of years that I've just finished, which was a recruitment role. And one project I took on, uh, which was trying to look at the gender balance in engineering and trying to try address. The, the very low numbers of women that choose to study engineering. And it was weird for me taking on that project because I came from a, a sense of thinking, well, well, I don't think there's that big of a problem. But once I took it on I, and I started to look at the numbers, I thought, and, and when I say I didn't think there was a problem, of course, there's a numbers problem. But what I, I kind of wondered was, because my own experiences had been quite positive and encouraging, I kind of was wondering, well, maybe there isn't an interest, you know, there, and maybe it's, that's what it is. But actually then I started to do some research into, you know, uh, okay, well, what's the data out there saying about why people don't choose? And it's not just engineering, it's STEM subjects. And I found some very depressing reports that really um, have stood with me. One was that they, in the UK, they did a survey, the engineers council there did a survey of a group of parents of seven-year-olds boys and girls and their parents all were brought into these focus groups and they asked them questions like who's better at maths, boys or girls? And that one really stood with me. Like unanimously, they all said, the parents, the boys and the girls at seven years of age, they all said, you know, 90 something percent positive percentages that uh, boys were better than maths and girls. And, you know, I hate to have to clarify this, but that's not true. Uh, not at seven years of age or 17 years of age, women's scores in mathematics, which is one of the core indicators for engineering, are, are nearly always equal, you know, so that there's no gender difference in terms of mathematical ability. But, And I would have known that, but to see that that's not what the general, uh, you know, a, a focus group like that would, would respond with was very surprising to me. So then I kind of thought, oh, okay, I have to do something about this. So we did a, a project on trying to come up with some social media campaigns to try and encourage more women into engineering. And I worked closely with a colleague in the recruitment team, Neve Conley in NUIG, and we came up with this video and it, it was all around kind of trying to capture that thing that just because you haven't been exposed to engineering and now you're 16 or 17 doesn't mean your interests or your aptitude or your abilities are not well matched to engineering. So it was quite a simple video. It was kind of trying to, to plant the seed of, okay, maybe you were that kid who enjoyed your maths in school, or maybe you do have kind of hands-on interest in, in doing, you know, technical things, or maybe you just find the whole idea of, engineering exciting so we did this uh, campaign and it was largely successful I mean I was quite proud of it in the end you know we have this nice video just trying to come up with a website you know giving testimonials of, of students who've done engineering I'm talking a lot now Megan about engineering and women in engineering no not at all though no, because I was actually like when you were talking earlier I was going to highlight the fact that you had said because I was in the same position where you know we both went to all girls schools and some subjects yeah. just weren't you know, offered like as in there wasn't any engineering, there wasn't any uh, woodwork and even like stuff like applied maths wasn't offered in my school. Like I, I did it. I went over to the boys school to do it, you know, this kind of thing. So I didn't do it. I didn't do it till first year college. And like I did physics and I did engineering and I did, oh, sorry, math, sorry. And I did chemistry, but it is those kind of things. And there was only five in my physics class, you know, so out of a class of 100 potential leaving certs, you know, only, only five did physics. So these things, you know, I think it's important to think about 
what the bigger reasons are that might explain things like that. And it's simple things like encouragement, you know, and in that role I did, which was a recruitment role, I spoke to a lot of guidance counsellor and the mix of kind of understanding and, you know, willingness to promote engineering as, as a, a career choice that, that I encountered was surprising to me as well. I mean, I met one lady from a school once who, who I said, oh, can I come and talk to your, your all-girls school about engineering? And her answer was, and this is only about four years ago, her answer was, oh, no, no, engineering, that's not for our girls. And, you know, that to me was so surprising that I think it was about 2017 that that was said to me, that, you know, somebody would make a decision uh, that engineering was something that all girls of that school, a big school, I won't say where it was, uh, would not be interested in. So, you know, you start to go, okay, so my my experiences were positive and that's possibly been huge in where I am, but that's not the case for everybody. You know, maybe they are being discouraged from thinking about it or maybe no one has ever said it. So I've taken that really seriously ever since then, you know, the idea that you continue to try and match interests to, you know, things like engineering. So either interests or abilities, you know, and I, I do these talks all the time, trying to encourage people and I give them a list of six things you could be that are well suited to engineering. And I always remind them, you don't need to be all of them now. Mm. And sometimes 16 year olds don't get that message either. They think that they need to be, you know, already on this path and already doing all these things. But, you know, I think from first day in university, as long as you've got the entry requirements, it doesn't actually matter whether you've been, pulling apart computers at home or not uh, your entire life. I'm sure that's helpful if, if you're interested in maybe electronic engineering or computing, but it doesn't, you don't have to have those experiences to then become something because that's what university is all about is, is training you and getting you uh, ready to become whatever career it is you choose. Yeah, and I think you kind of start from scratch nearly again um, with whatever course you, you choose. Um, but yeah, so I suppose this is kind of a good point in our conversation to bring in the whole field of what, what you work on. So mechanobiology, I know, is a big interest of yours. Uh, I suppose bone development and then uh, the osteoporosis work. Um, so yeah, if you just wouldn't mind giving me, I suppose, a quick overview of the field and then where your research fits into that. Yeah, so mechanobiology is an interdisciplinary field. And what that means is that, uh, you know, the very essence of it requires engineering and biology to, to kind of address you know the, the field so I should explain maybe some examples of mechanobiology in real practice so bones are an easy way of describing this because uh, you know if, if somebody spends time on the international space station for example six months when they come back to earth their bones are as weak as women in their 60s okay so these are strong fit astronauts and the lack of weight bearing uh, exercises can significantly deplete their bone mass and what's happening there is that the cells inside in the bones think that there's this required amount of bone that's needed for the exercise or physical activity we put on our, our bones on Earth, for example. So now in a weightlessness scenario, the cells think that this bone is not needed anymore and they start to attack it. They start, so there's, there's these sensor cells which can kind of measure the amount of uh, force we're applying on our bones. And then there's a, these actor cells that can be called in to uh, either build new bone and that would be, for example, say the tennis playing arm of Serena Williams would be, have much denser bone. It's not just her muscles. Everybody looks at her pictures of her arms and they say, wow, look at her muscles. But actually, you know, many tissues in our body have the ability to adapt in response to mechanical force. So that's mechanobiology. It's the, it's the cellular monitoring 
of physical activity and then it's tissues that then respond to changes in forces so that the, the tissue itself is better designed for whatever physical activity you put on it. So that's why I suppose engineers and biologists are needed or, or, or engineering and biology approaches are needed to be integrated in this field so that ultimately what we're studying are things like, you know, changes in gene expression or, or production of proteins or, you know, matrix. So, so how the cells are actually changing what they do biologically. But we need the engineering to be able to manipulate those behaviours. So we need to so what we often do is we'll take cells out of the, the human body, put them on a dish, and we might, might drive fluid flow over it. Or we put them on a matrix and we basically squeeze them on this matrix or on this scaffold. And then we study, okay, can we make more bone under different conditions or, or can we understand loss, bone resorption, you know? E- you know, even the kind of examples of the astronauts being on the International Space Station in the sense that the the cells, I suppose, are are fooled into thinking that they don't no longer need these bone cells yeah. and can eat away. But then also comparing that with, yeah, Serena, Serena Williams' tennis arm, where she's kind of having weight-bearing force on, on her bones in that one arm all the time. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a good visual way of explaining it. But yeah, I suppose then tell us a little bit about your research then uh, fitting into that field. We're kind of interested, first of all, in understanding how bone cells what cellular mechanisms do they have to measure these forces? So if you think of how do we measure things, weight is the easiest way of everybody thinking about this. We stand on a weighing scales and there's a spring inside in that weighing scale or a system of springs, but ultimately how much that spring moves will give out a reading of, of you know, mass. So cells actually have mechanisms to do something similar. So they have proteins that are on their outside surface that link to the matrix around them. So these proteins can be pulled on or pushed or squeezed. And our research is trying to understand, okay, well, what proteins are important? So some of our research is what proteins are important, you know, what different ways can they interact with the physical environment around it? So that could be a piece of tissue that it's stuck to. Yeah, so in bone, the cells are embedded of the, in the bone tissue, or it could be fluid flow over them. So if you think of your airways or your blood vessels, there you have cells that might have a, a different protein sticking out that can be bent under the flow. And then that triggers all these intracellular responses. So what we do then is, first of all, we, we try and understand what proteins could be involved but we also design engineering approaches to trying to manipulate it. So we can design experiments that involve, you know, stretching the cells or squeezing the cells or changing them, their physical environment to try and study how that changes the biology. But actually, our main focus is on the disease of osteoporosis. So in osteoporosis, quite like I I mentioned the astronaut on the International Space Station, people lose bone mass and leads to fractures of the hip and and the spinal vertebrae and the wrist. So it's quite a debilitating disease. People lose their mobility and generally sets them off on on a a poor prognosis for, for independence beyond that, you know. So why we're interested in it is we have evidence that suggests that the ways the cells normally monitor their environment is affected in the menopause, which is one of the primary causes of osteoporosis. So the change in the hormones uh, during the menopause actually affects these, the way the cells are, are monitoring and responding to their mechanical environment. So 
I guess that's one of our primary areas of interest is trying to understand, okay, how does these normal processes change in, in a disease state? And we also study metastasis, uh, so breast cancer metastasis to the bone. We try and understand how does that, what is it about bone that makes uh, secondary tumours from breast cancer you know, arrive there and be able to, to integrate into the bone. And again, we use the same approaches uh, to try and study the interaction between the cancer cells and the tumour cells as a result of their physical environment. And, you know, you kind of touched on it that the menopause is kind of a, plays a big role in, in osteoporosis. And what is the kind of link between, I think, oestrogen, I think it's one of the, the main hormones there. Like, what is the link between oestrogen uh, loss and then bone loss? Yeah, so I mean, so when people go through the menopause, well, women, I should say, many women can experience dramatic bone loss. So, so we call it um, a DEXA scan would be what you'd be clinically diagnosed, but you'd go in and have your bone density assessed. A lot of people in their 60s are doing this on a regular basis, as should be. The menopause is a trigger for that bone loss, you know, and so women experience much greater bone loss um, than men over their later years. And it is this relationship, the estrogen hormone that seems to be important. But while the relationship is well understood, it's it's the kind of how that is activated. And a lot of the drugs on the, the market right now focus on stopping further bone loss, right? So they're the actor cells I talked about earlier on. So if you can just stop them digging, then people won't lose any further bone. But an issue with that is often people diagnosed with osteoporosis already have lost quite a lot of bone at that stage, you know, so they're already at risk of of fracture. So what we want to understand, well, is there, if we look back to the sensor cells, is there other interventions that could be done uh, that maybe they wouldn't control this bone loss uh, if, if we can understand what's their role in this whole process? So that's what we kind of focus on. And I don't know whether this is known or not, but kind of what you're saying there that a lot of people by the time they even get diagnosed, have lost a lot of bone, would there be any way of, or is there any biomarkers or any potential biomarkers that you could test in the blood? Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of discussion of, and there has been lots of efforts to try and identify different biomarkers for, for osteoporosis. I think one of the biggest issues with osteoporosis is I, I don't think people are overly concerned about losing bone, you know? So it's not like cancer where maybe if you know you have a history of cancer, people might go and, and have some sort of regular, you know, checkup in which they might have some assessment made to see if is there any change in, in, in a biomarker. With with osteoporosis, people just aren't as concerned about losing bone mass. Um, but actually maybe in the future, you know, if we could identify the sequence of changes, because that's important, right? So we want to know not just, I mean, it's clear that bone is lost, but are a different cell population activated much earlier to trigger this bone loss, which is these uh, sensor cells. And there are therapies on the market right now that target those sensor cells, but they're actually only given to people once they haven't uh, done well on the anti-resorptive drugs. So it might be that the timing of administrating of drugs is altered, you know, so that you might uh, target a different cell population early in the disease and then later on, or, or maybe you'd go with two strategies at the same time. But yeah. th- that's long-term questions for us. I mean, we're still at the very fundamental understanding of, of mechanobiology rather than on the therapy end of it. Yeah. And, you know, I know that you work on, you use like bioreactors. Maybe explain to you what they do or how, like, you know, how they help you understand more about these bone sensor cells. Yeah. So 
ultimately what we try and do is recreate the bone I say biophysical or, or mechanical environment in the lab, right? So if you think about the ways we study a lot of cells of the human body, we often just take the cells out and put them on a dish and change, you know, conditions, biochemical conditions for, for the most part. That's, if you look across the world, that's a huge part. It's changing, of course. Uh, over the last few years, people have recognized the need for things like organoids uh, and, you know, trying to make these more like representative tissues. But up until very recently, that was the standard approach to study any cell type. And, you know, for bone cells more than any other cell, you know, studying their biology in a, a cell culture dish with no physical environment really doesn't really make sense, right? Because if every day in our body we're loading our bones. And so what we do then is we try and develop environments for the cells that kind of can recreate some of the conditions they see in the body. So a bioreactor then is something that, first of all, would control the nutrient supply and the carbon dioxide, you know, the normal things that, that we have to control for, for cells if, we, if we're studying them. But a bioreactor, in our sense, is is a mechanical bioreactor. So what we can do with our bioreactors is we can actually put the cells on a, on a three-dimensional material and we can compress them, squeeze them, drive fluid flow through them. These are all the types of forces or mechanical stimuli they see in the human body as we walk around every day. So our whole premise is, is that if we're to really understand the biology, we need to try and recreate those conditions. And then we can study the effects of hormones or the effects of a therapy, you know? Mm. But but once you can recreate that environment, then that's very important. So we have a European Research Council grant that's just started actually on the 1st of September, which is all about taking these systems to the next level. So trying to make our 3D, I call them ex vivo models. If you were to look in newspaper or press releases, you might see words like organoids or lab on a chip or something like that. But I'm more comfortable with ex vivo models. So an outside of the body, multicellular, so many, many cell types and a, a matrix or a tissue in an environment that is mechanically stimulated. So there are ex vivo models. And we're going to try and make those represent the disease of osteoporosis as closely as possible. And then the idea would be that rather than going to, say, an animal model, that you could go straight to, uh, you could test a lot of scenarios or a lot of understand the, the fundamental uh, pathophysiology or the drug treatment in the ex vivo model before then moving on to an animal model or a clinical trial or something like that. So it's kind of more representative because it's human tissue rather than an animal model. So human, uh, 3D, a physical environment, you know, so, so all these things together. So that's the idea that you can try as best as possible to recreate all of the conditions because we, we know that in the human body, other cell types interact, you know, with each other. So studying one cell type alone may not give you the full understanding of what would happen when it's in the human body. But the additional thing that we're doing is, is focusing on the mechanical environment that would be present as well. And where do you get these cells? So uh, some of them are commercially available cell lines. We start a lot of our experiments with those, uh, but we also get cells from patients. So we can get samples from people undergoing a hip surgery. Tissue is taken away when the, the implant is gone in and then we, we under ethical approval can get these. Uh, so some patients will donate their let's call it surgical waste, and we can then uh, extract human cells from that. And there's also various different donor programs, you know, stem cell donor programs, so you can get access to human cells through a number of channels. 
but yeah, I suppose another question I do ask people, Leisha, is, you know, kind of looking back on your career to in academia to date, like what drives this passion, I suppose, for learning and what do you love most about your job? And then I suppose kind of what do you find the most frustrating or stressful aspect of, of what you do? Um, so what I love most about it is working with PhD students and postdocs. I find being able to interact with all these people that are doing great stuff in the lab and come up with great research. And uh, I really do enjoy the, the writing side of science. So I, I love uh, analyzing data and communicating it, uh, all that stuff. I love nothing more than maybe where I might have a completely free morning to just write. So that's, I guess, you know, the communication side of it is really important to me. I, I really do enjoy that. How do we maybe convince our reviewers that this research, you know, has been done well, but is also important for the field. And, and to me, that's, you know, you can do a fabulous experiment and you can have the best data in the world, but if you can't communicate it in a way that a reviewer is going to agree, then, you know, you're, and sometimes people miss that point. I think they miss, they put all their time into the, the multiple permutations of experiments and, and they don't devote enough time now to thinking about, well, what does this mean? Uh, and how can I make it impactful? And I think that's changing. I mean, people like, you know, Science Foundation Ireland, you know, they're, they're moved to a focus on impact. A lot of PhD researchers coming through now, I think, have to know the importance of, of communicating your impact because it's been such a big thing in Irish research for a number of years, but um, it doesn't always have to be, the impact always doesn't always have to be that we're going to make an economic benefit or we're going to cure cancer or, you know, it can be uh, that we're understanding the disease or, or the, the biology better. So that's, I guess I, I do, and I'm I, I'm fortunate that I have graduates from my lab who are stayed in academia and I've gone on to see them do well. And I'm that to me is something I'm very proud of. And then, in terms of frustration, I mean, this it's challenging being an academic. You know, there's always too much to do. And there's, you know, obviously we all are lecturers and we have other, you know, pretty heavy administrative burdens in our jobs. And to me, it's how my time keeps getting filled and filled and filled. And uh, I find it frustrating sometimes that, I would have been always a person who met deadlines and I, I liked to consider myself conscientious, but the more you take on, the more everything gets stretched. So I'd sometimes find a frustration that I don't have enough time to devote something that I would like to spend more on, you know, and that I'm always, something's always due. Um, but I guess that makes it exciting as well, you know. Yeah, and I think what you were saying there about being able to explain your research and the impact of your research, but also to be able to explain it without these complex terms, you know, like kind of our chat from today, like you, you didn't use any of the words, you know, you didn't use any of the words in your papers, you know, and we you kind of you got your message across. And I think that's really important to be able to effectively communicate. And I think science communication now more than ever is is important, especially with COVID and, you know, with kind of a, a spotlight on science and on scientific research. Researchers really need to be able to to communicate. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and that's a skill, you know, trying to, when people are so embedded in, in the study they're doing and, and, you know, I always tell people as well about, you know, we're switching audiences now. So sometimes it can be confusing to people that I would say, okay, write it in this very simplified way for this audience. Maybe if you're going to a generic conference with many different disciplines or you're talking to media or something like that. But then, you know, 
that won't cut it if you're going to your top meeting in the US that's full of experts, you know, there you need to switch back to your very, very specific and very to the point language. I think that can be challenging for people, especially older generations of researchers when they're now maybe doing something like this, they're talking to someone about their research for a generalist audience, maybe some people in the public or or people from a different scientific or or non-scientific background will listen. And it can be challenging to switch languages and also stay true to what you believe is what you're doing. And I would have done training a number of years ago. I did one of these Dublin talks, which was brilliant. And they were run by, I should remember who ran them, the Royal Society and, and Dublin Council, I think. And they they ran training with that. And, you know, it was brilliant training. But often you're kind of asked these kind of questions like, well, you know, when are you going to cure someone? Or when, you know, this kind of, not maybe not quite that directly, but, you know, there is this push towards big picture uh, headline, but that is very far removed from scientific publishing. You know, the things we sometimes say in a more public and general audience, we wouldn't dream of putting in a paper, you know. So it's trying to figure out how to navigate those two different ways of communicating and as I said, stay true to what you really believe your research is doing, you know, so so not just saying you're going to cure a disease when you really know if you were lucky in 10 or 15 years or 20 years time that that might happen, but it's still very important to do the research in the meantime so that the whole field can move forward, you know. And I'm trying to get people who fund research, you know, governments to understand that, that, you know, yes, there are these very obvious examples of how science is so beneficial and COVID in a way will have been very helpful in making that point going forward. I think you coming from your field, immunology, I'm sure, you know, it's changed the general public's understanding of immunology massively or, or the importance of it, that they could mm-hmm. understand the importance of it. But um, then, you know, trying to make sure that you can make that argument and convince people without having to um, promise too much, if you get me. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think, you know, sometimes you do see it where you see like, you know, researcher has found the top protein that to target for breast cancer. And then if you kind of know that researcher and they're like, I like I didn't, I didn't yeah. mean for that to be the headline, you know? Yeah, and, and and that's very challenging. And it makes people kind of sometimes a bit afraid of engaging because you don't want to be misinterpreted or you don't want to promise too much and you don't want a, a big press release out there that to, from your scientific mind is just far too um, ambitious relative to where you're at at that time, you know? So that's challenging and interesting. And, and what I find now with working with students now is, there is now this science communication. They get it from their first year. And sometimes I kind of would prefer that maybe they pick that scale up in third year or fourth year of their PhD because I want them to learn to communicate, you know, very honestly and very accurately what they're doing in a scientific fashion and then focus on how you'd communicate that to a more generous audience, you know. But that's my own personal uh, thoughts on it. You know, I'd be always concerned that people think that they're ahead of where they really are. Do you get me? So... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. And how do you find, I suppose, juggling family life? Because I know you, you said you've got kids now and I, I know you're back in Galway, so maybe your family helps out. But yeah, with managing your time and then managing family life, how, how do you find that balance? I think it's easier now that my children are six and eight. I think it was very challenging when they were younger. And you just, I think actually my way of working stood to me uh, because I, I had said earlier on that I was kind of this nine to six kind of person anyway. So when you have children, you know, your day is not 
endless. You have times of the day you can work and other times you have to go pick them up. And I think that helped me because I wasn't dramatically changing the way I worked because now I had kids. But, you know, it's constant struggle of feeling you should be doing something for the children when you're doing a work thing or doing something for work when you're, you're with the, the children. But certainly it's, it's getting much easier and childcare helps, you know. So, <laughs> and, and living in Galway for me helped as well, uh, having family there and, and just the size of the city that I didn't have to commute large distances, you know, to pick them up and, and spend time with them. But um, I, th- I think it's really important that people recognise that for everybody, it's a different scenario and every, different choices, you know, how they balance work and, and family life. And you kind of just do what you can and what, what works for you. And I suppose, Lisa, kind of one of the, the last questions I tend to ask people is, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up? A, a great question. I, d- I don't know. I think I probably would have found my way into some sort of academic type environment. I, I did enjoy English and writing when I was younger. You know, I, I don't think I would have chosen an English degree, but I, I guess I would have probably found myself in a in a place where I could apply myself and, and think and write and, you know, things like that. I, I don't know. I, I didn't spend too much time thinking about it, as I can tell you, when I was 16 or 17, I kind of made decisions, you know, that seemed logical to me at the time in, in a pretty quick way. But I think that's okay, too. I think we have to remember that that's where people are when they're 16 or 17, this pressure for them to have it all figured out is probably not fair or not realistic to to kind of put that pressure on them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, kind of if if you were enjoying English and writing, you know, there is a lot of of that to science as well, you know, scientific writing, writing papers. Uh, So I'm sure that skill kind of stands to you today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a very important part of it. But yeah, I, I don't know what else I would have done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes a question that stumps people, but maybe that just means that you're, you know, happy in what you're doing and there, there isn't. Now, I also think that, you know, everything kind of evolves as it should. So, I mean, there was lots of things that I never got that I wanted to get, like starting with physiotherapy, but there were jobs I applied for that I didn't get. And I don't dwell on those. I think I've gotten to hear because of those things I didn't get as well, as much as because of the things I did, you know, so. Perfect. Well, you know, Leisha, it's been it's been great. Um, you know, thanks again for for giving me your time today and, and talking to me for the podcast. Great, thanks yeah. for that, Megan. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.